Today's episode of Behind the Numbers is brought to you by B. Riley Financial. B. Riley Financial's diverse suite of services goes beyond traditional financial service offerings. By leveraging cross-platform expertise and assets, B. Riley Financial companies are uniquely positioned to provide full-service collaborative solutions to our clients at every stage of the business lifecycle and in all market conditions. B. Riley refers to B. Riley Financial Incorporated and or wonder more of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder. I'm a managing director at B. Riley Advisory Services, and this is the show where we dig deeper to understand what really matters most in business. Today, we're going to be talking about what's moving the markets and the economy, and I'm pleased to welcome a colleague and friend, Art Hogan, who's Chief Market Strategist at B. Riley Wealth. Art, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Well, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to doing this for quite some time, and I'm glad we're finally getting it together. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's great to pull you away from the, the big boys on Fox Business and CNBC, and we appreciate you taking some time to hang out with us here. Uh, for those who may not have seen you on those national programs, why don't you tell them who you are, please? So I'm Art Hogan. I'm the Chief Market Strategist here at B. Riley Wealth. Uh, I've been connected to the B. Riley family of companies for the last eight and a half years, and been plying my trade on Wall Street for about 30 years. And uh, in my role, I, I try to help people understand uh, what's driving uh, earnings and what's driving the macro narratives and, and what's moving markets around and uh, where we see things going. And I, I, I do that uh, with a combination of trying to um, have some rational uh, optimism and also simplifying matters that uh, shouldn't be made as complicated as they are. But that's what I've been doing for quite some time and pleased to talk about it with you today. Yeah, we're eager to get your input on that. So without further ado, I'm going to jump in here Art, and, and, and trying to read the tea leaves of what's moving the markets and the economy. Let's start with the discussion about the second quarter earnings season. Uh, earnings reports are happening. Uh, what is the significance of that and what do the tea leaves tell you? Yeah, it's such a great question. And especially timely because we are now in the third week of earnings reporting season, but it's the first real full week. And by full, I mean, uh, for the first two weeks, we, we had about 15% of the S&P 500 companies report. Uh, this week, we get about 127 of them reporting. So we'll have a much broader look at uh, how corporate America is doing and, and, and how they're faring with a strong dollar, inflationary inputs, uh, difficulty in hiring people, and how they're able to match up their results with estimates that are uh, out there on the street. And I think that uh, thus far, um, with a smaller sample set, I would say that things are certainly better than feared. And sometimes better than feared is good enough. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's take a step back and say, how do earnings reporting seasons typically go? And over the last 10 years, you would typically see about 65% of companies beat on their earnings estimates. And they about 63% would beat on their revenue estimates and uh, typically companies would either guide um, higher for the second the next quarter coming up and the next half coming up and and or keep their guidance the same then it's all, also an often it's a, the time that companies like to announce things like buybacks or increases in dividends and so it's an important time for investors it's also a time when investors get a chance to really shift their focus from the macro 
things like inflation and the Federal Reserve um, and, you know, readings on uh, CPI and PPI and consumer confidence and really look at a company by company basis of of how companies are doing uh, in their recent reports, how they're guiding us about their future and what kind of valuations we've described to that. So this week is ultra important to us because we've got a bunch of household names that are reporting, you know, companies like Apple and Microsoft and Google and Facebook uh, will all report this week. So this is one of those weeks where uh, I think that the, the earnings reporting season kind of hits a crescendo. And by the end of this week, we'll have a much better understanding of just how corporate America is doing and how realistic the estimates we have for the second half of this year are. Are we able to say, hey, earnings estimates haven't gotten ahead of themselves? And that's really the narrative that uh, was prevalent in the street coming into this earnings reporting season. There's a great deal of concern that, hey, we, you know, we know the economy is not doing as well, but earnings estimates haven't really come down that much. So now we actually get the report cards, and I think that's going to help markets pick a direction going forward and say either corporate America is doing a pretty good job of handling a lot of those headwinds they're facing, or we need to reset valuations. And like I said, it's going to be uh, an interesting week filled with earnings reports and, uh, and, and very revelatory for investors as we ed- exit the week after hearing from more than 125 S&P 500 companies. Yeah, Art, when you think about guidance and so forth, you know, it, the, nobody really has a great crystal ball. The future is certainly cloudy. Uh, and I know companies do their best to try and look into the future, but we've had some kind of uh, extraordinary times here with the pandemic creating more uncertainty. Now we've got inflation, recession. Uh, what's your take on the, uh, we'll call it the veracity of the guidance that you're about to see? Yeah, that's a really good point. I would tell you this, there are certain things that uh, companies can control and certain things that they know about how business is going. And remember, you report significantly after the end of a quarter. So you're already well into the next quarter before you're reporting your earnings and giving your guidance. So you do have a handle on what some of your orders look like, what some of the demand for your goods and services look like, and certainly what some of your supply chain issues look like. Are those supply chains getting better or are they getting worse? Uh, you know, are, are you able to hire the people you're looking for or are you freezing hiring? Um, is there demand and, and is that demand outstripping supply? And are you able to keep price or take some price to keep your margins set? So I think that there's there's a an ability for most uh, corner offices, CEOs and CFOs, to look ahead and say, it feels as though the pace of demand for either our good or service has continued or gotten better in the early part of the new quarter that we're in while we're reporting our results that are in the rearview mirror. I, I know it's going to be difficult to, to have that crystal ball and a lot of things can change in real time. But I, the one thing I would tell you is if we were going to have a lot of companies miss their earnings or give negative guidance, a lot of those companies would take advantage of the pre-earnings, pre-announcement season and come right out and say, hey, before we report our earnings, we want to let you know X, Y, Z. We saw several of the multinationals come out like Salesforce and Microsoft and say, you know what's bothering us right now? The strong dollar. And this is how much it's going to affect our earnings in the second quarter. That's called a pre-announcement. And that sort of sets the stage for a realistic uh, reading of what their earnings are going to look like. And I think that that's likely a wise thing to do. It's also going to be one of those quarters where people won't be surprised with some of the inputs that uh, companies complain about, whether it's a strong currency in the U.S., some of the inflationary inputs, et cetera, or which is the first time since the pandemic started that we'll actually have companies that are maybe getting too much inventory. We've heard that from some of the big box retailers, some of the department store chains. They're finally getting the, the goods that they wanted, but it's too late because 
consumers have shifted their consumption patterns from goods to services. And, and I think that's one of the issues we hear about now. Inventory controls, how we sit in the world of getting the things we wanted that we couldn't get a year ago. Now maybe we have too much of them and those things might have to work their way through the discount channels. Yeah, it's an interesting point you just made there about shifting consumption patterns from goods to services. Yeah, certainly during the pandemic, we weren't going many places and the demand for services was clearly down. I alluded to inflation, Art. Where are we with regard to inflation and what can the Fed do to reel it in? Well, I would tell you this. So you have to remember where this inflation is coming from. I think that's the important starting point here, right? So we had a once in a century pandemic that caused us to shut down our economy purposely. Um, and then we were locked down for an extended period of time. And it was going to be a couple of weeks, which turned into, you know, the better part of a year and a half. So to your point, that caused us to shift our consumption patterns. And over the last 40 years, U.S. consumers would consume about 65% services and 35% goods in round numbers. That got turned on its head during the pandemic. And, you know, we're stuck at home, so we're buying things to make our home office better and improve our lives at home. So we consumed about 70% goods and only about 30% services because we just couldn't avail ourselves of those services. And th this spring is really the first pivot and transition back to the normalization of consumption patterns. But for those two years that we were consuming more goods and services, that put a big strain on supply chains. So supply chains got constrained and it was very difficult for us to get those goods we wanted. So therefore, the price of those goods went up. That was one of the, the one of the main drivers of inflation. We actually were demanding goods. We had we were demanding more goods than we could get that was driving prices higher. So that was that was demand driven or demand pull inflation. And the good news about those, that type of inflation, it tends to find a supply response. It just takes time. And we're starting to see that now. So when you look at inflationary inputs like copper which is trading at an 18 month low gasoline prices down for 42 days in a row uh crude prices down about 20 percent from their june peaks lumber prices 60 percent down from their peaks so all sorts of the inputs that go into manufacturing all sorts of important things have come down significantly in prices the very good news is we're starting to see semiconductor manufacturing pick up so semiconductor pricing is coming down and availability is picking up so what does that do that helps uh, 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 manufacturers make those things that have semiconductors inside them. So think about just about everything in your life that has a semiconductor, whether it's your phone, your refrigerator, all of your appliances, and most importantly right now, your car. Right. And the more supply we get of those, the more supply of things like automobiles and refrigerators and phones will be out there. And that draws down that goods price inflation. So two things happening at the same time that are tamping down inflation, normalization of consumption patterns and supply chains opening up and easing up. And they're related because we've stopped demanding a lot of the things that we really wanted during the pandemic and we've shifted our focus to services. That lets the, the, the supply chains really unglue and, uh, and, and, and draws down on prices on their own. So we've seen some of the inflation inputs come in. We've seen all of the regional banks, the Fed regional banks uh, put out a monthly survey and one of the components of that survey that doesn't get a lot of attention is the prices paid in manufacturing in those regions. We'll get one this week from Kansas City. Interesting thing about that is that's been down for three months in a row. We don't talk about that much because it's just not that sexy of an economic data point. But that's another sign that inflation on its own is rolling over. The Fed will likely raise rates this this week, and they'll likely raise by 75 basis points. And that's going to help draw down inflation because that starts to 
pinch on demand. When it costs more to borrow money, you tend to demand less. And that's the one tool that the Fed has to help fight inflation. So inflation is being fought on two levels right now. Monetary policy, trying to tamp it down, and the natural forces of supply chains opening up and the normalization of consumption patterns actually helping inflationary pressures ease on their own. All right. For those who are watching or listening and want to learn more about you or how they can contact you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Well, a couple of ways you can do that. Um, I'm on Twitter and I, I, I post regularly. It's uh, Arthur Hogan III um, on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn um, and that's uh, a good way to get in touch with me. I put out a daily note. So if you have a financial advisor, they can get that to you on a daily basis. Um, and that's often the, the best way for our financial advisors to get what I'm thinking about out to everybody. And I write that every day religiously and it hits their inbox about 7.30 every day in the morning. Um, and, you know, every now and again, about four or five times a week, you'll see me on things like CNBC, Fox Business, Bloomberg TV. Um, and, and you always have the ability to sort of you know react to that in real time. And I think the best way, though, is if you had a financial advisor right here at Be Rally Wealth, they can send you what I'm saying every day, and you'll have a pretty good handle on how we're thinking about the world. There you go. And uh, folks, definitely check out Art on Twitter. He does some really interesting posts there, including uh, sharing a couple of views and insights from his interns. More about that uh, later on. But we've got to take a commercial break here. So Art, don't go anywhere. Are you watching and listening? Sit tight. We'll be right back after we pay a few bills here on Behind the Numbers. Dr. Mark and Liz from Marriage Matters, a show that inspires, instills hope, and empowers couples to weather the stresses of married life. Join us each week to hear how couples, real couples like you, have overcome challenges that were hurting their marriages, as well as getting expert advice on ways to nurture a happy and healthy relationship. Tune in Fridays at 4.30 p.m. and Thursdays at 9 a.m. on RVN TV. Today's episode of Behind the Numbers is brought to you by B. Riley Financial. B. Riley Financial's diverse suite of services goes beyond traditional financial service offerings. By leveraging cross-platform expertise and assets, B. Riley Financial companies are uniquely positioned to provide full-service collaborative solutions to our clients at every stage of the business lifecycle and in all market conditions. B. Riley refers to B. Riley Financial Incorporated and or one or more of its subsidiaries or affiliates. And welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking about what's moving the markets and the economy with Art Hogan, Chief Strategist at B. Riley Wealth. Uh, Art, welcome back for round two. Don't want to waste any time here. Want to get as much out of you as we can. So let's talk a little bit about, I don't know if it's a psychology thing or if it's just an anticipatory thing in general in terms of how money is run, but what damage gets done in anticipation of a, a recession? Yeah, that's such a great question, Dave. And, and you really hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> what we always like to try to figure out, and it's all, almost impossible to put your finger on exactly, is how much of the bad news that we're anticipating has actually been priced in to equity prices and, and, to, and to markets in general. So what I will tell you is that coming into this year, 
um, and, and you know, at its low point, the S&P 500 was down some 20% or, or a little bit more. The NASDAQ was down. The NASDAQ Composite Index, which has 3,600 companies in it, was down about 30%. And round numbers in the Dow Jones Industrial Average got down about 14%. And so in and of itself, that doesn't sound that bad. And your average recession stocks are down between 30 and 40%. So we're getting close, but maybe not there. But what's important is to look under the hood and say, okay, well, that's the index. How's the average stock doing? And the average stock at its low point in the NASDAQ composite, which makes up 3,600 usually growth technology type companies, with the average stock was down close to 50%, it was 48% at the low point. That's, that's, that's a lot of multiple contraction. That's a lot of price carnage. And in the S&P 500, which is 500 large cap stocks, and the index being down about 20%, the average stock was down about 35%. So there you are in and of itself. If you were to say the average stock is already priced in the average recession. And we did that in anticipation of things happening, things like inflation running hot, the Fed having to get hawkish. We did that in anticipation of the economy likely slowing, certainly having a GDP report in the first quarter that was negative 1.6% uh, drove that process even further. But while it's impossible to say exactly how much of, of the concerns we have about a recession, either whether this year or next, has been priced in. I would certainly say we've done a lot of the work. I think the market's been very efficient in being a forward pricing mechanism that has looked out and said there might be some dark storm clouds on the horizon. And if they turn into a hurricane, we, we, we should take some multiples down. We started the year with a multiple, a forward multiple on earnings for the S&P 500 at about 21 and a half times. That was the beginning of the year. At the low point, we got down to 15 and a half times, and we're currently trading at about 16 times. So we've done a lot of multiple contractions. We've contracted four or five turns, right? And that, and the 10-year the average or the 20-year average, even if you looked at it for the S&P 500, is about 16 and a half. The 10-year average is much higher. It's closer to 18. So we've actually gotten down to very reasonable prices on what we think earnings estimates look like on a forward 12 basis, a forward 12-month basis. So I would say that the process of pricing in bad news has actually been painful, but very efficient. And I think the sell-off happened in a very efficient manner too. The sell-off started in the middle of last year in the most speculative regions of investment, right? So it was the very speculative, um, newly minted IPOs that were pre-earnings, um, very speculative uh, uh, companies, then electronic vehicles and upstarts and disruptors and all the companies that at the time of zero interest rates, we're really measured on a, on a, on a price to revenues. And, and to do that, you have to look out in the future and then discount back using what a, a, a fair interest rate would be. Well, back when the Fed funds rate was, you know, call it zero to 25 basis points, you could have a multiple of 20 or 30 and not look ridiculous. Flash forward to today where we're at or about 3% on the 10 year, you have to take that multiple down. So we've seen that most speculative end of investing get hit the hardest. And some of these disruptors are down 50, 60, 70%. In large part, that makes sense. But then it started to navigate up to more expensive companies, but still in the mainstream. I think that you know when we finally hit a crescendo in this sell-off is when they finally came after the energy companies and that started selling off. Best performing sector in the S&P 500, but it got hit as well. And typically that happens closer to the end of this sell-off. Things that happen towards the end are you go after leadership, whether it's the big household names like Apple, Microsoft, Google, et cetera, or it's the best performing sector that had been resilient throughout this entire year, which is energy. And that happened about three weeks ago. And I think that 
that crescendo happened with a lot of volume, very high volatility, and a lot of damage having been done in a short period of time. As we've entered the new month, you see people incrementally start starting to get back in this market. So I think we've done a pretty efficient job of saying, hey, there's some storm clouds. We should prepare ourselves. Let's take our multiples down. And now let's see what the information is that we get from this point forward. And, and perhaps there's more good news and bad news in front of us. And we've overdone it and created some bargains. Yeah, let's hope so. But Art, what sectors do better, if any, during a recession? Well, typically what you want to think about is, and simply stated, I would say, is you tend to want to invest in things that you need versus things that you want. So what does that mean? Consumer staples, utilities, things like healthcare, things that you're definitely going to need, regardless of the pace of economic activity. I think that the things that you want to avoid in a real sense are things that are more discretionary, things that you want. Consumer discretionary sectors tend to do poorly. Um, so luxury goods tend to take tail off. Investors tend to make a trade off and say, you know, instead of going to Nordstrom's, I'm going to go to TJ Maxx, you know, instead of buying something for that wedding I'm going to, and there's two and a half million weddings this year, I'm going to go to rent a runway or I'm going to, you know, do something else. And it's that value proposition. So that's what tends to do well in the beginning. That's something that's been happening already. The multiples for staples and utilities and real estate investment trust and healthcare have certainly been on the rise this year. And that's what's referred to as defensive sectors. So the the problem with timing that is, is if enough people have already read that handbook, you can see multiples get ahead of themselves. And we started to see that in consumer staples. They've pulled back a little bit from their peaks. But I would say in general, a good thought process is if we're going to have a long drawn out recession sometime in the next 18 months, it's better to be defensive and defensive is basically things that you want, uh, things that you need versus things that you want. Now, that said, by the time we know we're in a recession, that may well be priced in as well. And then the first thing that does well coming out of that tends to be those stalwart companies that have very defensible cash flows and actually can use that in the, the shareholder friendly way. So think about the, you know, the trillion dollar market cap names that, that we all are familiar with that likely end up being more, um, I would say, re recession resistant. So what's the last thing we're going to give up? We, you know, we'll give up going to a restaurant a couple of times a week before we'll give up our iPhone for sure or our, our smartphone and our cell phone service. It's those we've already found those are some of the last things to do. And oddly enough, during the last recession, we found the last thing we give up is getting coffee in the morning. So think about things in a realistic <laughs> way. Do I need this or do I want this? And, and then think about those companies that provide those things. And if you want to shade your portfolio to being more defensive, that likely will help you navigate the choppy waters that come when we finally uh, determine that we're in a recession. Yeah, we may not give up our coffee. I know I certainly wouldn't, but there's uh, certainly other ways of getting it without uh, leaving your house to do so. Uh, all right, for folks who are watching, uh, listening, want to learn more about you or how they may be able to work with you, how can they connect with you? I think the, the easiest way to do this is we, you know, we have uh, literally more than a thousand financial advisors that can help you with this process of navigating these rough waters. And I talk to all of them on a constant basis. We have meetings every week. I put out a note every week. So finding a financial advisor at B Riley Wealth is going to certainly help you get connected with me. Certainly following me on social media helps because I, I'm not shy on there talking about things that have happened, especially economic data that I think has been confused. And a piece of economic data that always gets confused, and I'll tell you right now, just was proven out over the last two weeks is consumer confidence surveys, either by the Conference Board or the University of Michigan, what consumers say when they get called up and ask questions about how they're feeling and what consumers do. 
in terms of retail sales that came out much better than expected. And that was just reported on Friday. So with consumer confidence surveys making new lows, that's called soft data. That's what I said to you on the phone. And then I hung up the phone and went out and, and, and spent some money at uh, one of my favorite places consuming some services. So retail sales are still hanging in there pretty well. If you yep. want to hear things like that, I like to comment about that. All of our financial advisors on a regular basis, I put out regular notes, very active on social media. And uh, you can always catch me on CNBC and the rest of the financial news networks. Yeah, and I teased in the first segment about Art's Twitter uh, handle. He's got uh, three interns. They're adorable little dogs. And definitely check them out into day Friday when it's pencils down and beers up with the interns. Art, I, I know that we're getting down to the final innings here. I'm not exactly sure how much time we have, but I want to jump into as much as we can. I want to talk with you a little bit about more market psychology without getting you into any kind of trouble with compliance. I know you've got some, uh, some guardrails, but I'd like to talk to you about diversification. It's often been said it's the only free lunch in investing. Uh, maybe you can speak to you know, the power of diversification and how investors might think about doing so. Yeah, it's such a topical question for this year, um, only because when you think about the diversified portfolio that's the 60-40 mix, which is historical, this is the first year since I've been doing this for the last 30 years. We both went down at the same time. So global equities are down about 19% year to date and global fixed income is down about 13% year to date. So being diversified in that 60-40 portfolio hasn't worked perfectly, but that's a lot of that is because of the things we're talking about, pricing and worst case scenarios and what might happen. I think from this point going forward, having a balanced portfolio, really the, the two things that you know are the free lunch in investing is diversification and compounding. And, and, and compounding just means that you want to continue to reinvest your profits. You want to, on a regular basis, be an investor in 401ks, your dollar cost averaging, regardless of what you are, uh, what the market's doing. You're either buying you know, stocks at higher prices or catching the lows. And I think that's one of the best things. But when I talk about a balanced portfolio, the one that we think is going to be the best portfolio for the next year, year and a half, two years, is to have a combination of growth, but growth that is measured in a price to earnings. So you want to have those companies that aren't measured in a price to revenues, companies that have defensible earnings. Make that half of your portfolio. Make sure the PEs are reasonable, and most of them are right now. On the other side, you want to have um, a, a balance now of some defensives, things that are defensive, things that you need versus what you want. So think about either staples or utilities or real estate investment trust. You want to have access to things that will do well in the cycle that we're in. That's energy. Energy is likely going to be the best performing sector in the S&P 500 this year and likely will be next. And the third thing I would say is healthcare should be part of this. I think that healthcare across the spectrum not only is going to be something that we'll always need, but is very attractively priced. So when you put those together, you've got a barbell of some growth and some defensive. And then if you keep that balanced, by balance, I mean making sure that if your growth has gotten much larger and increased much more, that you rebalance at the end of a quarter or at the end of the half and say, okay, I'm back to where I was. I've got a balance of both. And that's the best diversification advice that I would give anybody. I appreciate that, Art. Uh, real quick, we've got about 60 seconds to go, but want to get your thoughts on how investors should think about valuation. Well, I would tell you right now, I think valuations have gotten very reasonable. Now, that's not to say if a stock is down 60%, it can't go down another 30%. We saw that with one of the social media names just last week. But they, it was also a company that didn't have earnings. So what I mean about uh, attractively valued, what I really am getting to is what is the multiple is trading versus its growth, right? So that's it's, a, it's an old term called 
PEG, PE to growth. And that ratio, if it's if it's trading at a PE that's lower than its growth rate, it's extremely reasonable. If it's trading at a growth rate, a PEG rate that is less than two, it's still very attractive. Almost all of the names that you would recognize that we would put on your growth bucket are trading at pegs at somewhere between one and one and a half. We generally don't get those opportunities. Valuations have come down significantly. We have only rallied 8% off of our lows um, in this current sell-off. We're not even back to the midway point and the peak to trough on the S&P 500. I still think there's going to be a lot of opportunity in front of us. All right. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I can't thank you enough for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure to have you in this long-form conversation to share some uh, deep-dive thoughts with us. Well, David, it's always a pleasure, and I'd love to do this again uh, the next time you have an opening. I'd love to have you back. We've been talking today with Art Hogan, Chief Market Strategist at B. Riley Wealth. And again, my name is Dave Bookbinder, and I'm the one that my clients reach out to when they want to know what their most important assets are worth. You can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm always happy to have a conversation, so please do reach out. Today's episode was brought to us by B. Riley Financial. Do check them out at brileyfin.com. And thank you for watching and listening. We can't do this show without you. Hit the subscribe button wherever you're watching or listening, and you'll stay in touch with all that we're up to. That's all we have for today, folks. Thank you again. We'll see you next time on Behind the Numbers.